0: Thank you. (laughs) My name is Adam. I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank the group. Thank you for inviting me to come talk tonight. It's always an honor and a privilege to be asked to participate in Alcoholics Anonymous. Ultimately, it's a responsibility to get back what was so freely given to me. Uh, Welcome to the people that are new. You know, if you're trying AA again, if you don't want to be here tonight, if you don't think AA will work for you. You know, I didn't get here because I got a I had a bad weekend, you know. Uh, I had a couple of bad decades. And, and for me, like a lot of us, eventually this becomes a matter of life and death. I mean, every meeting has their perpetual newcomer. I live in Los Angeles. We have about 3,000 meetings a week. Even now, after COVID, we have a really, really big, uh, you know, it's a big area. It's one of the biggest counties in the country. And I, I stood up in AA for 17 years as a newcomer. And I I had so many chips and key tags. We know the drill, right? Could have played poker with them, You know, thank you. I remember one secretary saying, give them back. And I, you know, I did that (laughs) horrible. I did that walk of shame over and over and over again. And looking back at that experience now, I thank God for the unconditional love of the old timers. A lot of the old timers in our area that, that aren't with us anymore. A lot of those old guys that died with 30, 40 years sober that watch me coming in and out of the rooms and they would say things to me like, don't even bother taking chips. Just sit in the back, shut up. (laughs) No, but in a loving way, right? But they made it really clear to me, and if you're new, I hope you hear this. They made it really clear to me that if and when I was ready, because somehow they could see it. They could see it by my demeanor, my lack of interest, my fidgety nature. The old-timers had the wisdom to see, just by my attitude, that maybe it wasn't right now. But they made it really clear to me that if and when I was ready, that the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous would always be open to a drunk like me. And I think, looking back at that experience now, next to my parents, if you're new, Alcoholics Anonymous is probably the closest thing to unconditional love that a drunk like me will ever experience. No matter how many people I burned, how many lives I destroyed, how many cars I wrecked, how many hearts I broke, how many jobs I lost, how many despicable, shameful things I did. And if you are, in in fact, an alcoholic, it's the most shameful thing in the world to be the family drunk. I mean, especially if you come from a large family like I do. My mom had three sisters and a brother. My dad had three brothers and a sister, and she told them everything. You know, one more rubber room, one more institution, Right? Happy birthday, Dad. I'm in jail. I mean, does anybody here relate to being paid not to come home on the holidays? <laughs> that was my life. And, you know, looking back at it now, I was, a, I, was a, I was an only child. I was a straight-A student. My mom and dad loved me. I didn't come from a broken home. They were married almost 50 years. You know, you to see the love and hope that parents have for their kids, the expectation right outside these elementary schools, you know. They line up for blocks where I live. And to watch my mother and father, to literally watch them through now the lens of Al-Anon, to see it now from the other side of it, and to watch those two people literally watch me burn my life to the ground to the point where eventually my mother had sold the family property, she moved, and she didn't leave a forwarding address. That's where I left her. And despite all of that, The doors of AA have always been open to people like me. If I lived to be a hundred years old, I could never pay AA back for the love and kindness. You know what some of you people have shown me. I mean, not all. I mean, we were talking about it before the meeting. If you like everybody in AA, you know what it means? It means you're probably not going to enough meetings. My sponsor said "You know, very specifically, you don't have to like anyone in particular in AA, but as you walk through the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're here for a while, you'll learn to love people here you don't even like. That's why we have traditions, to protect us from these things that could destroy us. And what happened to me eventually, and I know we never see this anymore, eventually I started coming to meetings drunk. Now, the interesting thing about AA 2024, if you actually see a drunk person in an AA meeting these days, people say stuff like, oh, my gosh, what's he doing here? (laughs) I mean, as ironic as it is, we don't see a lot of wet alcoholics in AA, and I don't want to bash the therapeutic community. I saw the druggy buggy out there. But, you know, we don't get a lot of wet alcoholics in AA, and I... You know, what I would do is I, w- I would go to 7-Eleven. I would get a big gulp cup. I would fill it up with liquor, put a little Coca-Cola on top, and I would, I would walk into the late-night Hollywood candlelight meeting, you know, do some of my best sharing. <laughs> You know, and then I started going through institutions, and it's funny, if you're new, we have a chapter in the big book, The Chapter to Wise, and it's interesting because The Chapter to Wise really describes four types. It's almost like if you look at it, it's the progression, magic, medicine, misery, fun, fun with problems, just problems, but in The Chapter to Wise, you have this fourth type, and the fourth type in The Chapter to Wise is a type of alcoholic that's been placed in one institution after another. Sound familiar? the type of alcoholic that typically drinks on its way home from the hospital. And in the 17 years that I recycled through Alcoholics Anonymous in probably one of the largest groups of AA in the world, I still became that fourth type. By the time I finally got sober in AA, I'd gone through residential treatment for alcoholism 28 times. No, not 28 days like the movie, this isn't Hollywood, right? 28 consecutive times and I'm wearing that like some kind of badge of honor. I'm thinking that's what makes me an alcoholic. And I I remember telling my late sponsor, hey, I went through treatment 28 times. I was hoping that would, like, get rid of the guy, you know, loser. Go find someone that's willing, right? Didn't want to ruin his batting average. And he starts laughing just like this. He's laughing at me. And I said, that's not very funny. And he said, Adam, going through treatment 28 times, that doesn't make you an alcoholic. And I thought, you're kidding. He says, oh, no, that just means you paid half a million dollars for a big book. And I didn't think that was funny. (laughs) And I'm not going to start citing and quoting pages tonight out of the big book. But page 101 of the big book (laughs) says, any scheme that attempts to shield the alcoholic from temptation is doomed to failure. See, for me, treatment was a great place to fatten me up for another run. Treatment has its rightful place in recovery. Even Bill Wilson had gone through treatment. Right? I mean, if you ever wonder what all the treatment centers and religions do have in common, it's obvious. They all send their drunks to us, right? (laughs) Funny enough, even Silkworth says we favor hospitalization or treatment for the alcoholic that's befogged or jittery. Some people don't go through treatment. Treatment is not a prerequisite for AA, but my experience, if you're like me, is that treatment never solved the problem. And as an alcoholic, like a lot of us, I always thought the problem was alcohol, I thought it was liquor. And I remember someone in AA saying to me, Adam, if alcohol's your problem, that drink, that shot glass, that 12-pack, that little glass of Chardonnay, if that's your problem, you're probably not an alcoholic. And then he paused and in the very next breath he said to me, and if you are in fact an alcoholic, the type that's described in the doctor's opinion in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, your problem is an alcohol. And I'm like, what? It took another decade, another 10 years of suffering for me to understand what he was trying to say. It was almost like some kind of cruel riddle. I drank over that for years. But what happened to me, and we use the word often in AA, we talk about this word serendipity. What happened to me is that I got around a group of big book literalists, people that took the statements in the big book of AA turned them into questions, and directed the questions at me. Very simple ideas, like, was I incapable of being honest with myself? Did I, in fact, drink because I liked the effect produced by alcohol? Duh, that's a no-brainer, right? How about this? Good question. Was I restless, irritable, and discontent by nature? Was that my natural state before my lips ever touched alcohol? Was my greatest obsession that somehow, someday, I would control and enjoy my drinking at the same time? And the last piece, did I pursue that illusion, meaning just out of reach, to the gates of insanity and death? And as I went through those considerations, if you're like me, what happened is for the first time I saw the truth. And the most obvious truth, what we call now the external unmanageability, was crystal clear. From the time I was in eighth grade... I was already pissing in my pants. I was already drooling on my desk. I was already passed out under the bleachers. I overshot the mark from the first time I touched alcohol. My nickname in eighth grade was Space Cadet. I couldn't find homeroom. No, I mean really. People are picking high schools. I was already picking rehabs. But if you're new tonight, alcoholism comes in people. It doesn't come in bottles or six-packs or 12-packs or kegs or shot glasses or little glasses of wine. Alcoholism comes in people. And the greater aspect of this spiritual illness, as Bill Wilson describes it, centering in my mind, if going through the considerations in the big book shows me anything at all, It shows me that an alcoholic of this type, an alcoholic of my type, cannot really live without alcohol, not successfully, not happily. And part of what it really means for me to be an alcoholic, if I'm honest about my relationship with liquor, is that I seem to have a mind that will consistently take me back to that first drink. Every time I get released from an emergency room, right, a fancy Malibu treatment center, a hospital, men's central jail, 5743, roll it up. It's amazing to me. I'm sitting in county jail in my cell, casually reading a novel, not a cloud on the horizon. (laughs) And I hear that number, 5743, roll it up, and suddenly I have this visceral compulsion in me that is so powerful that I can't even stop at the release module for my property. Sound familiar? As soon as I hear that number, like Pavlov's dog, It overrides every other thing. And what's so amazing to me, like I said, I can't even stop for my property. That's how powerful this compulsion is in me. And I come to an AA meeting, and you well-meaning people say things to me like, well, don't drink no matter what. And I'm like, I'm a literate person, right? What happened at the top of page 24 where it says, every alcoholic passes through the stage where even the strongest desire is of absolutely no avail? And I don't mean to be disrespectful or divisive because Wilson talked about a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. If you don't think that doesn't happen in AA, when I hear well-meaning people say to me, don't drink no matter what, there's a translation for me. Go to meetings no matter what, work steps no matter what, maintain commitments no matter what, be of service no matter what, develop the discipline of steps 10, 11, and 12 no matter what, and just like Silkworth said, this person who seemed absolutely doomed is suddenly able to, able to easily able to control their desire out for alcohol. What a powerful thing that is. You know, and again, not to bash the therapeutic community, but we like to say AA has no evidence-based results. You hear that, right? I suggest if you're new, go to a world convention. Check out 85, 90,000 of us converging onto a random city like Vancouver next year. And it's amazing, when you see 90,000 people in a stadium and they do the out-of-towners, it's like the United Nations. I mean, it takes two and a half hours. Every country, every nation, every city, every township. And you can't do that with your insurance. You have to buy a plane ticket, conference ticket, hotel room, right, probably a rent-a-card. But what's so amazing about that, if you're new, is that for every single one of those people, that have made the effort, and the word is effort. You'll see a beautiful daughter, a father, a sister, a brother, an uncle, an aunt. You'll see a world of people that will tell you that AA is the most powerful thing in their loved one's lives. You know, people try to discount AA, but we all know even this little book, that we're talking about, is in the United States Library of Congress, as the top 88 books that shaped America. It's affected the lives of somewhere between now 30 to 40 million people with all the sister and cousin programs. And you know why I don't think it's going to work for me? Because it wasn't my idea. That's my self-centeredness. And we were talking before the meeting, you know, my sponsor said to me, I I was talking to Nancy about it, he says, it doesn't matter who's wrong, it doesn't matter who's right, it just matters who's left. And if you're new, when I see people with 20, 30 years sober that have amazing lives, that are chasing their dreams, that have learned how to navigate around the trauma, that have learned how to match calamity with serenity, that have learned how to have fit, spiritual conditions, learn to have relationships that work. What happened to me, if you're new, is I became teachable. I became willing to take actions here I did not yet believe in. So what it really means for someone like me to be an alcoholic, if I really look at my history, is I seem to have this mind without the structure of the group, without the steps, without these ideas like these concepts, what happens is I have a mind that will consistently take me back to that first drink. It's almost like my default program, like on a computer. And I, you know, I hate to say this, but I, I live, the town I live in now is called Silicon Beach, right? And the reason they call it that, we've got about 250 tech companies that have taken over our city, Yahoo, Snapchat, Google, and we have a lot of these really smart guys that come in our, you know, our home group. A lot of them are programmers, they speak in Python and Java. Here's some uh, math for the smart people. Potential plus alcoholism equals zero it's like the quadratic formula of aa <laughs> so We talk about the language that Bill Wilson uses in 1939 and how really advanced it was for that time period. Because today we use the word program all the time. It's common vernacular. One of the definitions of the word program, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's very simple. It's right here. It's a sequential set of instructions with a purpose, right? designed to do what? Designed to bring about a result. Now listen to the common language. What do you do when you get a corrupt file on a computer? It's obvious. You install a recovery disk. And the function of that disuse is to restore that program to an earlier point in the process. Just like the second step, the original self. It never occurred to me that 10 and 11, for a lot of us, become like a viral scan. That if I follow these real simple instructions, what happens when I get to 10 is I start to become accountable. I become transparent. I become mindful. For the first time in my life, I'm able to see where I paint the red flags green. It never occurred to me, if I really look at 10 and 11, that book ending of my day, and upon awakening, these six prayers, that when Bill Wilson talks about principles before personalities, it never occurred to me that it was our founders hope that these spiritual instructions, these guidelines would have more impact then I hate to say the untethered hysterical opinions in AA because I love the fellowship. I love Denny's. I love going out to the birthdays, the weddings, the parties, all the things that we do here. But, But my mom would have parties with 300 people. I grew up around a lot of people, a lot of really educated people. And like it says in that second chapter, the fellowship is but one element in the powerful cement that binds us. And there's a warning there. It said it would have never held us together as we're now joined. See, for me, the fellowship gives me enthusiasm, it gives me inspiration, it gives me encouragement, it gives me hope, right? Brotherly love. Some people actually find relationships and employment here. But if you unleash a character like me into a large group of people like this without guiding principles, you know what happens? My character defects thrive. In fact, I get sicker in the fellowship of AA without guiding principles. And what that looks like if you're new, for me is I start to become more separate, more different, and more alone. And if you haven't heard that terminology, what it actually means is separated from God, different than every single person here. I think we call that terminal uniqueness, right? And alone, you know that loneliness, that ache in the heart of every one of us that has nothing to do with the proximity or closeness of other people? That loneliness at the core of my soul. In a crowd like this, it's worse. The bigger the crowd, the more alone I am. My own birthday, my own wedding. That loneliness at the core of my spirit when I hit that pillow at night. If you have that like I do, what that is, is my inability to connect. You put a couple of drinks in me, I'm calling people from fifth grade saying I love you. (laughs) I go right into amends, get me loaded, put a couple of drinks in me. I'm standing on the roof of my building, howling at the moon. I'm one with the universe. (laughs) Couple more drinks, I'm okay with me. Get me good and loaded, I lose interest in selfish things. And suddenly, I go from selfishness to other-centeredness. I'm drunk dialing at 3 in the morning. See, alcohol produces the illusion that my life is manageable. And if you're like me, unless I can develop that sense of comfort and ease that I'm seeking from booze through this process, a drunk like me will never stay here. And right next to being separate, different, and alone, those three ideas, there's three fundamental pillars in my recovery. The first is to be protected by some kind of God the second to be accepted by self, and the third to be connected to a community. And it's interesting because you hear it in a vision for you. The last thing he says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God, right, one through three. Admit your faults to him and your fellows, four through seven. Clear away the wreckage of your past. You abandon a ship, you think you can get back on? I was told you go to the ocean with a cup, you get a cup full of water. Try going to the ocean with your whole life. And that first piece, you hear it, we read chapter 5 on the West Coast, it's like this thing where we read it in every meeting, but you hear it in chapter 5 where it says, we ask for his care and protection with what? Complete abandon. That's the first piece. The second, 4 through 7, to be accepted by self. What that means if you're new is as I go through that part of the process, I no longer need internal or external validation. I develop what's called an internal locus of control. That's a clinical term, but it means that I don't need that outside validation. And the third piece, to be connected to a community. Protected by God, accepted by self, connected to a community. And I go from being the weakest link in my family, and I'm talking about generations of it. My mom's brother committed suicide drunk. Father's brother committed suicide drunk. I come from a long line of suicide, mental illness, and alcoholism, generations of it. And to be 25 and a half years away from that and now be the strongest link in the, the family? It is said that alcoholism is the only disease when treated that will actually leave the sufferer in a better position if they never had the disease. I did never believe that. Until I got around people in my home group that said, how free do you want to be? You want to be free enough to just survive this? So when people say, how you doing? You could say, I'm hanging in there. My sponsor goes, I'll buy you a drink just to put you out of your misery. (laughs) Or he said, again, do you want to be free enough to chase your dreams? Free enough to have relationships that work free enough to navigate around the drama, free enough to match calamity with serenity, free enough to stay in fit spiritual condition, because these are the kind of promises we talk about. If you want to talk about the big book, one of the ways I was taught to go through the book was four highlighters, prayers, promises, warnings, and directions. And if you go to the seventh chapter, there's 39 specific directions that will tell a person exactly how to work with other people. He didn't use words like codependency, enabling, and boundaries. But I guarantee you, every one of those ideas are there. Every one of those ideas, these concepts were timeless. So what it really meant to be an alcoholic, for me, it's almost like if I really look at it, and I'm gonna say this again later, a lot of people stop drinking, they come to AA, they put down the drink, and somehow it's amazing, everything works for them. They fit in, they're part of, the career welcomes them back. They come to meetings once a year, and never work a step, and their life gets better. They've been serene since their ass hit the seat in AA. That's not my experience. My experience, every time I stop drinking, the first thing they say to me is, you know, you really need to be on medication. Why are you so angry? Why are you so emotional? Why can't you sit still? What's wrong with you? And, I, and I'm crying at dog food commercials. <laughs> See, when I'm not drinking, I have a whole nother set of problems. And we all know they're outlined on page 52, right, the bedevilments. When I'm not drinking, right, I'm a prey to misery and depression. You can ask yourself these questions as I go through it. I was asked, when I'm not drinking, am I still a prey to misery and depression? Yes or no. When I'm not drinking, am I still having trouble controlling my emotional nature? Yes or no. When I'm not drinking, am I still having trouble with my personal relationships? Yes or no. When I'm not drinking, am I still full of fear? When I'm not drinking, do I feel like I don't have purpose in my life? When I'm not drinking, am I still unhappy? And the way that plays out for me in what we call untreated alcoholism is I don't fit in, I'm not part of, you don't understand me, they're not paying me enough. She's cheating on me, I got a drink. And it's amazing, as soon as I pick up a cocktail, I intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle me. Couple more drinks, fear of people and economic insecurity, leave me, I'm buying the whole bar drinks. Hell, I'll write you a check. Not only are you getting better looking, honey, I'm getting better looking. Right? Couple Vicodin, I could comprehend the word serenity, and I know peace. (laughs) Little cocaine, I want to start a business with you. (laughs) See, if you're like me, alcohol produces the illusion that my life is manageable. It does so much for me, I don't care what it's doing to me. And that's what earth people don't understand about us. That unless I can develop that sense of comfort and ease that I have always sought from alcohol through this spiritual process, a drunk like me will never stay here. It's got to be more than alcohol. For a lot of people in AA, alcohol's the problem. You know what the solution is? Abstinence. And the doctor's opinion, since we're talking about this, is clear. Many of us are entirely normal in every respect except the effect produced by alcohol, right? Normal, able, friendly people, that's not who I am. (laughs) I think they have another, what's the other type? Oh, the restless, irritable, and discontent type. That's a little more like it, right? I think we have a new word for wrestlers. What is it? Oh, ADD. I don't got ADD, come on, please. If you had a million dollars in a trunk of your car tonight, I might follow you home from the meeting. I have what's called selective interest disorder. I'm only interested in things that concern me, right? I got an irritability, that's for sure. I'm quick to anger, I'm slow to forgive, Sound familiar? Keep score in every relationship that I'm in, right? Anybody have the fault-finding mind? Vulture on the bedpost? Up five minutes before me every day? I've been waiting for you. And then I got this worst thing, which is the discontentment, which we all know. We've all said it. The shine wears off everything right away, right? Brand new car, saving all year for the car. I don't even get it off the dealer's lot. It's the wrong color. Right? New house, not even out of escrow. Hate the neighbors, hate them. And the dog, the dog, every morning. Get a new job, making more money I've ever made in my life. I start doing the math, getting ripped off. (laughs) So we talk about relationships, love of my life, soulmate. Three weeks in, I'm already correcting her. (laughs) So I got something else. I got something else. And that is the lens through which I see the world. That's the part no one talks about. That unless I can make that adjustment, this delusion that people have to change for me to be happy, it's such a powerful part of the book where it talks about the Florida businessman laying in the sunshine complaining about the state of the nation, right? It's going to happen again at election time, right? The next one is the minister sighing about the sins of the 20th century, the safe tracker, but every one of those, the finger pointer, the guy that's holier than thou, the the victim, they're all... In one way or another, connected by one simple idea. And the idea is if people have to change for me to be happy, I'll never be happy. And everything in Alcoholics Anonymous is begging for me to take responsibility. To learn how to be happy in a dysfunctional relationship. To learn how to be happy in a dysfunctional family. To learn how to be dysfunctional in a, you know, functional in a dysfunctional nation, maybe. And that piece, that piece was very, very powerful. So having this mind that keeps taking me back to alcohol, and if you're new, I look at 17 years of suffering, even, like I said, in one of the largest groups in the world, and what I see in my life is my defiance towards spiritual principles. You know, and since we're talking about the book, the original manuscript on Chapter 5 used to say rarely have we seen a person fail that's thoroughly followed our directions, right? Now, if you're like me, I don't like directions. Ask my, my girlfriend, right? I don't like being told not to do something I already don't want to do. I will argue with anybody about anything at any time. You tell me it's black, I'll tell you it's white. You tell me it's big, I'll tell you it's small. You tell me to go left, I'll go right with an attitude. No right, and then I'll blame you for eternity. That's why we say denial's an acronym. It stands for don't even notice, I am lying. No Think about it, you could tell an alcoholic, you can't tell them much. Oh, you don't believe it, try sponsoring somebody. And what that means is you can lead me into the gates of hell, but you can't push me into heaven. And if you're new, when we talk about attraction rather than promotion in the 11th tradition, what that meant to someone like me, if you're new, is eventually I would come back to AA on my own terms. Not because sober living wanted me to, not because my parole officer wanted me to, not because DCSF thought it was a good idea. Where I live on the west side of LA, they're all getting sober for the trust fund. But see, if you're like me, hope doesn't matter to a drunk like me until I'm hopeless. I mean, you think hope matters to me when I still got a million dollars left in the bank, brand new Harley, boat down in the marina? You wouldn't catch me dead in an AA meeting. And my experience is that God didn't matter to me until my back was against the wall. And this isn't gutter bravado. I got shot in a little argument, went right through me. I'm laying on the gurney. I got the paramedics over me with little paddles, ambulances on both sides, and guess what? All I know is God, right? I mean, if you're a drunk like me and you got your head in the toilet every morning, puking your guts out with the dry heaves, who prays more than drunks like us? Come on. you don't relate, you might be in the wrong room, and I'm not being divisive. But what's so interesting about that is that Bill Wilson had had a really powerful white light experience. And right next to it, it says it was quickly blotted out by worldly clamors, most of which were where? Within himself. So I can remember being in the cardiologist's office in the ER. He put a tampon right through me, right? And then he does an angiogram, and he runs this dye through my groin, into my heart, onto the TV screen, he says, the bullet missed. I was drunk in 20 minutes. I went from, God, I will do anything, anything. You say, God, please. I I am so teachable. I am so broken. I'll do anything to, I need to get out of here before law enforcement shows up, right? It's like, it's that quick. It's that quick. And the reason I'm saying that if you're new is because there's a huge difference between the act of surrender that gets a newcomer into Alcoholics Anonymous over and over and over again and the state of surrender that keeps the old-timer here. It's a completely different concept. It's like watching a swan glide across a pond of still water. It's so beautiful, so effortless, it's so graceful. But we we all know what the swan's doing under the water, right? Paddling like hell. If you're new, we have a chapter into action, right? Into action. You ever notice there's no chapter into feelings? (laughs) I always have, like, one therapist come up to me, like, you know, into thinking. Right? Into whining from the podium at the noon meeting. I'm like, get a job, dude. No offense, (laughs) but what I was told is our triangle recovery unit in service, which is represented by these three banners right here, really turn into three consistent actions. Contribute, belong, and learn. It's very simple. It's almost like if there was a weight pile in the middle of this room and every day I drive iron for an hour, you think I'll get strong? Absolutely. Does it matter how I feel about it? In in the therapeutic community, there's a therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy. In AA, it's one sentence and maybe a dollar. And it's that I can't think my way into right living, but I can live my way into right thinking. So what I was taught to do from the very beginning in AA is to take that triangle, recovery, unity, and service, and translate it into those three actions. The more that I contribute, which is commitments, the more that I feel needed. The more that I show up at meetings, which is to belong, the more I feel wanted the more I uncover, discover, and discard that which is blocking me from God, self, and others, for the first time in my life, I'm able to give and receive love bilaterally. Because it's through altruism, the unconditional concern for another spiritual growth, which is really another definition of the word love, that allows me to become whole. That my sponsor said to me, very simple, if I need to simplify it, he says, your head, your heart, and your feet need to be moving the same direction. Your head is the steps, your heart is service, your feet are meetings. And very, again, another way to put it is the steps bring me wisdom, the fellowship or two or more gathered bring me power, and by reaching back in the community, I'm able to give and receive love. Such a simple idea. But that was the foundation. For me, that's the first thing they did, is they showed me how to understand that ancient spiritual symbol, the circle and the triangle. And it would show me a way to feel wanted, needed, and loved in every area of my life. So thank God we don't look like our stories, right? So so what happened to me is I got to one more treatment center, 120 pounds, stunk like urine, missing a couple teeth, right? You know, we look, a vision for you. And I'm I'm in the treatment center in my nightgown with my ass hanging out, judging the speaker. It's so funny how we're the only people that could be on the curb and still look down at the world, right? I got two speeds, grandiose and comatose. And I'm strutting around the detox bragging about Robin Brink's trucks. I finally did my four-step, it was a bread truck. It was empty. So I'm sitting there in the treatment center with my fellow associates, and th- this woman comes in on what's called an H and I panel, which stands for Hospitals and Institutions. I think they, they also call it Homies and Inmates, but but it it's a it's a committee. In some states, it's it's co- treatment and corrections. But H and I, the committee, brings meetings into prisons, detoxes, treatment centers, hospitals, anywhere where clients, patients, or inmates can get, get to meetings. Our H and I is about 250 people. Once a month, we meet, and they're fighting each other to get on panels to talk to people that don't care. <laughs> but I think h i probably has one of the lowest relapse rates in all of recovery. The same people have been there for the 30 years I've been doing it. So this woman's on this h i panel. She's doing her AA talk. And at the end of her talk, she looks us all up and down, and she says, if I could give you all the gift of recovery, I wouldn't do it. And I'm like, What? I remember I turned to my friend and I said, what a bitch. (laughs) No disrespect. And then she said something that would later change my life. She said, the reason I wouldn't give you the gift of recovery, the reason I wouldn't give it to you is because I wouldn't rob you of the journey. And all these years later, I've come to understand, if you're new, that that journey to recovery, just like that journey to surrender, that each and every alcoholic has to walk is personal. If you're new, we can't give that to you. And again, not to be divisive, but if you're in a hot tub with a supermodel, a fifth of whiskey and an eight ball, and daddy sends you to rehab, we don't expect you to be happy. (laughs) Anybody ever been interrupted in the middle of a fifth of scotch? It's like the worst thing ever. (laughs) Horrible. But for me, like a lot of us, and we know this to be true, The disease was killing me every day, and it wouldn't bury me. See, that gift of desperation is a great acronym for God, the gift of desperation. But in the final stages of alcoholism, magic, medicine, misery, the misery phase, God means something totally different. When my head can't get enough, and my body can't take anymore, and I'm knocking on death's door, a lot of us know what that's like, right? When my head can't get enough, my body can't take any more. God means something totally different to me. It means grow or die. Then my hand's gonna be forced. It's not a choice. It says face with alcoholic destruction or to live on a spiritual basis, these are not what, easy alternatives? Do a survey, Costco, jails, institutions and death, happy, joyous and free. What's your choice to be? It's a no brainer. You step over to my cell in Men's Central Jail, you ask me that question, I'm thinking, How about an alcoholic death? (laughs) Right? Can I talk to my parole officer, my therapist, my MFT, my yoga teacher, and my counselor and get back to you on Monday? (laughs) And I'll justify, minimize, and rationalize my right to drink. First half of step one, me defending my right to drink the rest of my life and the rest of the program, me defending my right to play God, and I never saw it. And all those things that impeded me from that surrender were actually the things that were blocking me. That's why we say, if you're new, God can't use a man or woman till they come to the end of themselves. No doubt. And what I didn't understand is for most of us, whether I knew it or not at the time, that the bottom is relatively the same for all of us. Two elements, when I ask for help, right, number one, and two, when I'm actually willing to receive it. From Yale to jail, Park Avenue, Park Bench, those two elements are always there. I'll put it real simple. I throw you a life raft, and you look at it and say, you know, I was looking for a blue one. I don't like the way you threw it. How do you work with someone like that? It's so frustrating. And then you're at their funeral with their mom. I'd rather step on your toes than your grave. I think it's important. You know, if you're new, we're the only people that want a reward because we ran out of a burning building. You know, you're feeling heroic, gave up your big Sunday night, right, in New Jersey to hang out with us, please. (laughs) This is the only place on God's earth where they'll applaud because you came in to save your own life. You're wondering when the miracle's going to happen? It's happened. You're here. You know, we've all said this. A lot of people have said it. My recovery, my sobriety is God's gift to me. What I do with it is my gift to God. I was told there's three prayers in this life. The first one is, God help us. That's the alcoholic prayer. Second prayer, God give me, greatest distraction on earth. But the prayer I would never said was, God use me, right? And Cynthia calls me. You know, and I get the honor of coming here and talking about something that means so much to me. You know, we were sharing before the meeting. My mom read the big book. I was a drunken teenager. I remember being 16, 17 years old in AA. You know, and I'd come in and the old timers would be like, you know, kid, we spilled more than you drank. We're like, you know what, pops, we didn't spill any. That's why we got here sooner. (laughs) But my mom said, they knew you before you were born. I'll close with this. The time's running out really fast. If someone did to me what I did to myself, I hate to say this, but I would have killed him. If someone did to me what I did to others, I would have killed him. And then I come to AA and you want me to pray to God? I didn't want God to find out where I was. I'd become bankrupt in those really simple relationships. If you're new, if you really look at the steps from afar and by design, they remedy those three relationships. Steps one through three recreate and develop a relationship with God. Four through seven recreate and develop a relationship with self. Eight and nine recreate and develop a relationship with others. It's a very simple idea. 10 maintains, develops, and grows my relationship with self. 11 maintains, develops, and grows my relationship with God. 12 through service maintains, develops, and grows my relationship with others. So coming out of the steps, a selfish, self-centered drunk like me is not only easily able to control my desire for Again, that's right out of the doctor's opinion. But for the first time in my life, I'm able to live in harmony with God, with self, and with others. There was a great spiritual teacher. He was asked, what's the most important thing of all your teachings? And he said, love God with all thy heart. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And if God scares you out of AA and you're a real drunk, don't worry about it. Booze will scare you back in. So in one through three, I give it up. Four through seven, I clean it up. 8 and 9, I make it up. 10, 11, and 12, I keep it up. And again, by doing those simple things, I'm able, again, to navigate around the drama. I'm able to match calamity with serenity. I'm able to stay in what we call fit spiritual condition. So one of the things that happened to me when I got out of that 28th residential treatment center is the guy that was running the detox said to me, Adam, why don't you come back to our lovely hospital next week and tell all the patients here how you managed to stay sober an entire week, if you can make it. And then the guy threw me off the property. And I was so hurt. You know, we're sensitive when we're new. I was so offended by the way he treated me that I had a resentment. I was so mad at him that for the next eight and a half years... I sat in two hours of bumper-to-bumper traffic from South LA County to the West Valley to tell a bunch of strangers in a detox, again, that didn't care how I managed to stay sober another week. And guess what? I was tricked into service. (laughs) It never occurred to me for the first two decades in AA that the reason I couldn't get sober, the reason I couldn't have this very simple spiritual idea is because I wasn't willing to give anything. It never occurred to me when Bill Wilson got out of Towns Hospital, 1935, and he said he was a broken man. He'd lost everything in life worthwhile, right? Bill said he was plagued with waves of depression. And Bill got a real simple idea. Maybe if I go back in the hospital and talk to some of the patients, I'll feel better. That's all it was. And we all know the story. He called that guy, Dr. Silkworth, Silkworth, as we all know, was a double board-certified physician, certified in psychiatry and neurology. He was the chief physician at, at that time, the most prominent hospital in the United States, that treated alcoholism. Trust when babies from all over the world came to see Silkworth. You know, I, now it's the rehab Riviera where I live, but at that time, that's where it was. And in Silkworth's opinion, he said, with all our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach, we're not well-equipped. I have in my big book and big letters, I can't fix you. So when Bill called Silkworth and he says, I have this idea, Silkworth's like, you want to do what? It says, with some misgiving, he said, we allowed Bill Wilson to come in the hospital. And he says, the next thing he says is, the cases we followed were, quote, most interesting. Some of them are amazing. Dr. Silkworth, after all those years of working with people with very little hope at all, was absolutely amazed with Bill Wilson, and so much so that if you look at the first endorsement in the doctor's opinion, it says you can absolutely rely on anything these men say about themselves. That was a letter of credibility given to Bill Wilson on the town's hospital letterhead with Silkworth's personal number. This guy risked his reputation on a newcomer. If Silkworth wasn't here, none of us would be here. And the most powerful thing about that is what did Bill Wilson really know? He had this very, very simple experience with Abby Thatcher, surrender, catharsis, restitution, and service. I didn't know it till later on page 13. Ebby wrote Bill's four-step for him. I never saw it. The word I is used 19 times on page 13. The word we is used right in the middle of the page. It says, we made a list of people with whom I was angry and who I had harmed. But see, Bill had something very powerful, and if you're new, I hope you hear this. Bill developed what's called a servant's heart. See, he was grandiose, he was sensitive, he was omnipotent, right? If anything, he was immature. But he was, a, there's nothing wrong with being a capitalist. But see, <laughs> not at all, but, but it had to be backed up with having this heart of a servant. And when Bill came in, he started being helpful. And I'll close with that idea. Our dear friend Clancy, who's not around anymore, the last time I was was with him was on Thanksgiving, at a Thanksgiving event for, for PG. And the last thing he said was, Adam, alcoholics need to be useful more than they'll ever, ever need to be loved. And if you're new, that being useful for me was taking another human being through the process. If it's reading the doctor's opinion to him like a kindergartner, Understanding the craving, the obsession, the malady, this very simple thing. And you'll, you'll really learn a doctor's opinion because by the time they get to Bill's story, they'll have a career. By the time they get to more about alcoholism or there's a solution, they'll be in love. <laughs> right? By the time they get to a four-step, they won't need AA. Yeah. No doubt. But that one piece, there's only two kinds of people on this earth. There's guests and there's hosts. See, the guest is never happy. No onions on my burger, I don't like the king-size bed, I really want a different rent-a-car, what'd you get me for my birthday? But see, the host comes at life very differently. How can I be helpful? See, puke smells the same in a Mercedes, I didn't understand that. All my life I've been trained to solve a spiritual problem with a physical solution. That's what six and seven is. By by doing this one little thing, by turning away from self-centeredness to service-centeredness to other-centeredness. You know, for the first time for a lot of us, I got the keys to the kingdom. I'm thank you. If you're new, you hit the lotto with this group. Again, our home group. I'm not. Gonna, it's heresy, but our home group. The format is we take people, we read a paragraph, and then we have three minute shares on that paragraph, how you would take a newcomer through this section of the book. And then it says, if you don't have experience with that, we ask you to reserve your comments to questions. And then it says, this is not a meeting to talk about your day or your relationship, but like we have like five people walk out. But that meeting, it's growing just like this. I have learned more about working with new people because that was the key. If you're new, don't be scared of this. You can't give a newcomer worse advice than they're already giving (laughs) themselves. Right? We have a roadmap here to spiritual skills. If you're new, get involved in this group. It is a design for living that really works. Thank you very much.